0: Quitting smoking requires willpower, but we could all use a little help sometimes. Nicorette's Stop Smoking products increase your chances of quitting smoking by up to 60% versus unaided. Clinically proven to help you quit for good. Nicorette contains nicotine. Stop Smoking aid requires willpower. Always read the label. Yes, we're back. Welcome to I'll Start Monday, the podcast that dives into issues we all struggle with in one way or another, where each episode we try to give you some practical advice so you can make positive changes starting Monday. I'm your host, Keith Walsh, returning for a third season. We have some brilliant guests coming up over the next six episodes, and we're starting as we mean to go on with Brian Penny. Brian is joining us to discuss habits, specifically how we can overcome bad habits and replace them with Good habits. These days, Brian is an author, speaker, and lecturer with a PhD in neuroscience from Trinity College, Dublin. But a decade ago, he was in a very different place as he struggled with a 15 year addiction to heroin. His story is remarkable, and it's hard to imagine someone better suited to this topic. Welcome to the show, Brian. I'm delighted to meet you. I've been dying to meet you, to be honest with you.
1: Great to meet you, Keith. Del- delighted to be here. Really looking forward to, it. and I love this topic of habits. So I'm really
0: excited for this today. Yeah, I'm. I'm very uh, interested in your story and following you from a distance. Fifteen years of a habit of addiction, like that's. I don't think people understand um, heroin. That's a full time job. Like these are the busiest people. In the world.
1: Yeah, wow. That's that's a great way of putting it, Keith. Like busiest in your mind and busiest in terms of the actions that you take. Like literally, you wake up in the morning and you are doing everything you can to alleviate that inner pain, the the challenges that you're doing. And it's all and I think that's the really important point that I try to get across as well. Like it's not that you want to take the drugs, you're alleviating an inner problem, you're removing something and that's the reward that keeps that habit going. If you want to call it a habit, it's a pretty bad habit.
0: Mm, and it's and, and as I said, like it's a difficult habit. It's a difficult habit to feed. It's constant. It doesn't give up. It's relentless. And I worry sometimes when I hear people talking about, even in 2023, when I hear so-called experts talking about addiction and heroin and alcohol and in relation to young people and they're talking about the addiction they're talking about the heroin they're talking about these young people are lost so they're taking heroin these people are bored so they're drinking these people they don't seem to see that this is a medicine for something now it could be a trauma it could be an event it could be just a makeup a brain makeup that they're trying to figure out that we're not looking beyond the addiction
1: still and This is the big thing that I try to get across all of the time. Like, I didn't have a drug problem. I had a mental health problem, an anxiety problem, a trauma problem. So I, I came into the world, actually, with a, with a condition known as intestinal malrotation. In other words, me guts were twisted. So that was in 1978. And based on very weak neurological evidence from the 1940s, pre-1985, infants did not get a general anaesthetic for an operation. So I went under the knife without an anaesthetic and I had complications from that surgery and basically from a biological neuroscientific perspective I became a finely tuned anxiety machine constantly scanning the world for dangers and threats and I just carved out this inner turmoil in my body that sort of set me up for the trauma sort of imprinted and set me up for a life of anxiety and I had a phobic fear of my heartbeat, breath and pulse. And I just struggled with anxiety, bodily agitation all throughout my childhood. I found heroin at 17, I found my anesthetic and that was game over for me, like it was just like I found peace for the first time and it was just removing that that trauma, that's all it was.
0: And really people don't understand that, that is the thing, nobody wants to be taking a drug that they have to take every day and spend all of their money on, nobody wants that but it serves a purpose. It's a medicine. It's something that we find and we seek out subconsciously. And then we're, I suppose, slaves to it. But but, but, like we look at somebody and, and, and I would never use the word, but I sometimes hear certain politicians you know, talk about junkies. or, yeah. And it's kind of different if somebody in a semi-D is taking a medication to deal with their particular issue, which is fine, and the doctor's giving it to them. But if you're if if the only way you found of coping is this heroin that you have to buy off a dealer you know that's not your fault and that should not be talked about in such a way you know
1: so true and it's a really important um point to make because there's so many people out there you think of Xanax and Valium it's the same thing it's it, it, like people have their poison that they use to remove those um underlying feelings but it could be it could be alcohol it could be prescription medication it could be work workaholics do that as well there's lots of different ways to alleviate that inner trauma that inner pain in some way and just because something is is known as heroin and it has this stereotypical like you hear of these like stereotypical heroin. heroin addicts like Transpon that's not the reality that's not how it really works and when I start doing research in that area and I went back to the methadone clinics where I was I didn't even realise at the time but the amount of people that are workers like that actually work daily jobs it's not that stereotypical addict and, and, and the ones that get there, like I got there in the end, I, I became stereotypical, but it was only because the drugs stopped working and I was taking more and more and more, like a snake trying to eat its own tail. It, I was It was making me worse. And then you get to the worst parts of addiction. And then it's either you die, you get locked up, or you, you, if the lucky ones um, start to get, have a bit of a shift and find recovery in some way, but it's few and far between. Mm, but there are
0: plenty of high functioning heroin oh, yeah. addicts out there. Oh yeah, loads. Mm. Yeah. loads, yeah. Uh, so it's not like, I just, w- I would really like to see us, certainly Ireland as a, as a country and the people sort of running the country and the so-called experts see it for what it is and talk about it the way it needs to be talked about. My fear is that they would have to invest too much in mental health services, in therapists, you know, um, putting those services into the schools, really investing in schools properly, you know, not just looking at, you know, the results and the the report card, but looking at the individual and seeing what does this individual need to live a fulfilled life. And that could be therapy, but that's all expensive. And that seems to me to be, you know, why we look at the simple solution and we tell people, well, you know, he's, he's a junkie. I wouldn't worry about him, you know.
1: Yeah, it's so true and we were ch- chatting before before we got on as well and I was saying I'm apolitical and I tend not to go into the political sphere on things but but it is more of a social problem like trauma is a result of lack of money, lack of resources, lack of just intergenerational trauma as well. That's circular perpetuating trauma where it's it's monkey see monkey do. If you've, if you've experienced violence as a child you're more likely to, to have a world view and a framework to operate in that mindset and it's all tra- these traumatic experiences so it's really investing money in those areas and low socioeconomic areas and just investing money in those areas but again very expensive it's it's a difficult difficult problem
0: yeah it is money but I, and I do I sympathize with you I I'm probably lucky that I never got to the point of you know taking heroin but I do re, I did get a diagnosis late you know I'm nearly 50 now but I got an ASD autism and ADHD diagnosis so now I understand where that anxiety was, where it was coming from. It wasn't coming from anywhere. It was just part of my condition yeah. um, and why alcohol helped and why I, I had to self-medicate for a long time. But it's, it took a long time for me to get to that point. And you'd love for younger people to sort of have the facilities so they don't have to wait till they're nearly 50 to figure it out, you know. Definitely. We're kind of here to talk about habits at what point did you sort of kick the habit? What was the
1: moment of clarity? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, the moment of clarity. And the, there's something that I always talk about with, with habits as well. And I'll probably, I'll probably touch on this at the end again. But it's like the behaviours that you take, the habits that you have on a daily basis, they kind of forge an identity. You could call it an ego for want of a want of a better word as well. It's a self-identity of who you think you are. And basically I thought, I'm an addict. I'm an anxious addict and I need heroin to relieve my pain. That that was the worldview. That was the identity that I had. And if anyone tried to take drugs away from me, if anyone suggested I try to get clean, I would protect that with my life. I protected my identity, my concept of who I was with my life. And it was only when I lost everything in my life. Like, I lost every important relationship in my life. I lost my job. I was a functional addict for a long time. I'd lost my job. 50,000 euro in debt to drug dealers, money lenders. There was no way out. I couldn't I, I, I couldn't get drugs anymore. The drugs weren't working anymore. So I had to go in a different route. And at this stage, I tried to get clean for the first time. And basically, I ended up doing... A, a, I was taking a lot of benzodiazepine, Valium, on top of... I was combining multiple different drugs scientifically, like a scientist, to numb that pain, but nothing was working anymore. But because I was on a lot of benzodiazepine, Valium and Xanax, I wasn't allowed into a heroin detox because I was trying to get clean for the first time in my life. So I ended up doing a benzo detox at home on my own. And I wouldn't advise anyone to do that. It's very, very dangerous. It can kill you and it nearly killed me. But thankfully, uh, not thankfully, um, I th- I'm thankful now, but I had an experience where I had what's called a grand malconvulsive seizure, where literally every neuron in my brain fired at the same time, like this fire going across my brain. I was convulsing and pulsing on the floor, it was a, a, a benzo seizure it's called, and I actually drove my teeth through my tongue, the centre of my tongue, blood everywhere, horrific experience, I ended up in hospital. And through the seizure, through that experience, there was like a chink in the armor of that ego, that that, that sense of identity, that sense of self. And I was just like, it was like I was forced into realizing that this didn't work anymore. I had to do something different. I was I was broke. I was so broken emotionally, mentally and physically as a human being. And I spent the next month on my sofa. I had another couple of seizures, another couple of hospital visits. But I spent a month on my sofa just as a broken shell of a human waiting for the benzos to get out of my system. And it was that falling down, that sort of crumbling of that armour and that, that moment that sort of gave me a lens to look at the world another way. And when I finally got to the detox facility, I was able to get into a heroin detox facility, there was just a different shift, a different energy in me. And I don't like saying I switched addictions but for want of a better word I I stuck my dopamine hooks into something else and that was education and learning and I just became I I like to say I transformed desires and I start reading books about spirituality psychology the mind the brain and I just start becoming obsessed with that and that was my new new pathway to go down and I, I, ha- I had like, I don't, I, I'd be spiritual in terms of awareness but I had a shift in perspective while reading these books and it was just like this energy came into me and I just felt so different internally, externally, everything about it was like the world was glowing and that sort of s- set the stage for me to sort of transform my life. So
0: you kind of had enough time to figure out that something else could give you dopamine as well or that, that thing that you were looking for, that thing you were searching for.
1: Yeah, it was like I was always running away from something. Like I was running away from panic attacks and anxiety. But the shift in perspective, instead of running away from something, I was running towards something. It was very, very different. It was like, it was, it was. It, I, it was alive. It was exciting. All of these new techniques and tools. And back to that sort of bodily tension I had, I remember when I was in detox, I tried mindfulness for the first time and he actually said it to me, he says, focus on your breath. And I started laughing and says, I'm afraid of my breath. I can't focus on my breath. And I'd done this mindfulness exercise through the nostrils where I was br- feeling the air going in and out of my nostrils. And I was like, oh my God, I can focus on this. I can do this. It was like a miracle that I could focus on me body. my body. My trauma was all body oriented, like most trauma is. And it was just these new experiences that was just I was like a little kid just coming alive again and I was like it just started to pull me along for the ride. Wow. So you literally swapped out yeah. this
0: bad habit for Yeah. This new habit. Yeah. Which obviously a lot healthier.
1: Uh, definitely a lot easier. <laughs> I, I, you know, you can get books easily. You know, there's libraries. You're there's allowed, libraries. Yeah, you know? have conversations with people, reconnect. All of the, all that good human stuff. You know, nobody giving out if a library set up in the yeah, corner yeah. of their <laughs> of their community.
0: So you you swapped out the the habit. So how long did it take you then to think? Well, I I, I could I could do something with this. I could go to. College or university? Yeah, or.
1: so funnily enough, um, when I was in, when I had the, the seizure, um, I, I had this experience where I couldn't verbalise my outer world. I was in the hospital and I couldn't verbalise, there was this fire extinguisher hanging on the wall and I didn't know what it was. I couldn't uh, label the, the, this thing that I knew what it was and I thought it was brain damage. And I remember in the in the weeks after that, I was saying I've done something to me brain, something weird has gone on there. And there was a doctor called, do- Doctor. she's a professor now, Professor Johanna Ivers, came into the detox facility to do this brain study. And she asked, she was, uh, I was on people on long-term methadone use for, for many, many years. And I was part of the brain study. And when she came in and was asking questions around the psychometric questions before we went in to do the brain study, she t- I was sort of preempting the next question. I didn't even realize I was doing it. And she turned around to me and says, God, you have a very sharp mind. And I was like, God, maybe I'm not brain damaged maybe I can go to college. And it turns around, that set the tone for me and, and my love for lear- my newfound love for learning to go to college. I'd done really well in college because my newfound addiction really pushed me forward. I'd done really well in college. Hyper,
0: hyper-focused. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: hyper-focused. And four years later, Dr. now Professor Johanna Irvers gave me a job teaching the neuroscience of addiction in Trinity College. So there's a lovely full circle moment there as well. But she sort of sparked that idea that that could be possible for me to go to college.
0: But isn't that amazing that you had swapped out this habit, you'd started looking at books, you were sort of hyper-focusing on this new thing which was learning and, you know, and that's what you do. You kind of, you gobble it up, don't you? You have an insatiable habit that has to be fed with new information and you also met this person at the same time who said something to you that gave you hope. You're not talking about, oh, I spent like five years, you know, in Taiwan trying to find myself. Like, it's very quick.
1: Yeah, it was. It was very, very quick. I was out of treatment in, it was January 2014. And I signed up for college in a couple of months after that. And I was starting college, my psychology degree in September 2014. So it was very, very quick. It was an instant. And I I think it's important to recognize as well, like when you stop a bad habit, there's a vacuum there. So it's important to replace it with something positive. So I think that's one of the biggest parts of my successful recovery was that I replaced my bad habit with something positive in my life. And I think that's really important if it went straight into addiction.
0: So obviously the interest in neuroscience
1: then was what was
0: happening to you as you were coming off the benzos.
1: Yeah, 100%. It was directly from that experience with, with Johanna that happened from the benzos. And I often talk about that, like some of our... Toughest experience often leads to good things. It's really, really interesting, but that's where it, my interest in neuroscience was sparked in that moment there, and it was really interesting. I got a scan of my brain, obviously in 2014. I was able to access that scan a couple of years later, and I done me I done me PhD in the Institute of Neuroscience in Trinity College, so I had access to an FR, fMRI scanner in there, and we took brain scans and compared them over time, and the changes in my brain over time were incredible. It was it's fascinating, and we done this machine learning analysis really exploring the changes over time and there's this thing called true neuroplasticity you can measure the predicted age of a brain and I'd actually reduced the age of my brain by six years which predicts cognitive decline physical health and mortality rate as well so it's great to see that the habits when you change your habits on the outside you change your mind and body on the inside as well so it's uh, it was great to have the objective evidence
0: so what was going on in your brain?
1: Like what's what's physically happening? Yeah. Try and try and explain it to me. Yeah. So so basically, what would have been happening when I was in addiction? Like I, I describe myself as a finely tuned anxiety machine. So that would have been triggers on the outside or internal triggers through memories, uh, traumatise my brain, firing up the amygdala system, just lighting that up and activating the stress response. You feel anxiety and panic. So basically over time, I would have that the brain. So it would have been neurons. When, when neurons fire, they wire together. That's the, the thing they say. Neurons that fire together, wire together. And basically, if to get into the biology, there's kind of growth factors within there as well. They're called uh, brain-derived neurotropic factors. But when you sort of live in a healthy way, like eat good food, exercise, you grow more of these growth factors as well that enhances... Synaptic transmission enhances growth of new neurons in some areas of the brain as well, but changes the density and the structure of your brain as well. But interestingly for me, what I'd actually done was I reduced the size of the amygdala, the emotion center, that sort of anxiety induced response. But you'd also change the, the connections within that as well, because in a normal functioning brain, you might get a, a bit of a fright, let's say. You get a bit of a fry. And the stress response system, the brain, lights up to to put you into a stressful situation, which is an adaptive thing. It's a signal that there may be danger. But if you are a traumatized person, that sort of stays, it fuels more trauma and it stays lit up. But if you are, are, are sort of, I don't want to say normally functioning, but somebody that doesn't get traumatized, that hasn't been traumatized in their life, The other part of the brain, the cognitive part of our brain says everything's okay, calm down and it calms that system down. So that's what I obviously done over time. I changed the 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 functional structure of my brain because I have a beautiful relationship with anxiety today. I still get anxious. It's a natural response, but I can calm it down very, very quickly with certain tools and skills that I've learned over time.
0: So what are the things then that people, I mean, it's things I can think of myself, but what are the things, if you are feeling stressed, if you are feeling anxious, like, is it those things, and it's probably, you'll know now, Getting out in the fresh air, walking, exercise, learning, learning something new, spending time with somebody, all that kind of stuff. That's uh,
1: having a physical, that's changing your brain, isn't it? That's changing your brain. Every single thing you do changes your brain. Like even even this conversation today, this conversation I'm having with you, my brain is lighting up in a different way. I've never had these conversations before. So everything we do or sense or feel is an electrical activity within our brain is feeling that. So there's little changes going on. But when you consistently do stuff over time, the brain is an energy hungry machine and it doesn't want to waste energy. So what it says is, right, this fella keeps on doing this thing again and again and again. Let's create a specific neural structure for this so we're not wasting energy. So that's the real change there. It's true neurogenesis and potentiation is the technical terms for it as well, but you are actually changing the structure of your brain.
0: Amazing. Fascinating. What's your goal personally then with the work you do?
1: Oh God. I like to give people the experiences that I've had because I just feel very lucky, very energized, very carefree. That's the life I live today. And I often feel like the experience that I had it was like I came alive. It's like I was dead for so long. It's like I came alive. And I was also often thinking about what what gives me purpose? What's my mission? What what makes me come alive? I, I came alive years ago from feeling like didn't, but what makes me come alive today and it's nearly making other people come alive giving them those light bulb moments those aha moments and they're like oh I got that and I've had a couple experiences over time I remember in I think it was 2016 the start of my speaking career I was going the schools and there was this little 14 year old kid that came up to me after the talk and he was like so excited and enthusiastic he says I'm gonna do that I was struggling with this I'm definitely gonna do that and I just I felt so happy for him but I just felt so good myself on the inside. And that sort of sparked this mission that I have to help other people and the work that I do in the schools and in the corporate arena as well. So it's really just giving people those aha moments. And that that's really that's really where it's at for me.
0: Yeah, and I think also that we we underestimate the power of doing something for other for others, oh, yeah. and, and and I presume that's got a physical manifestation, has it, on the brain or on the on the body
1: somewhere? Definitely. Well, just interacting with people is absolutely massive. Like you think of oxytocin, serotonin, all these feel good neurotransmitters, but there's really new research that's that's going on in neuroscience at the moment, and it's this kind of compound called tachykinin, and what it shows is that a buildup of tachykinin within the brain. It sort of predicts paranoia, stress, agitation, aggression. And it's sort of, you get a bit worried when you think of Vladimir Putin and all being very socially isolated and people in COVID being socially isolated. It's a buildup of this tachycardia. So that's why human connection is so important. I don't know the specific signs around helping people, but I think it's, a, it's an idea of, of gratitude as well. Like gratitude really activates those systems as well, it increases the amount of serotonin. And interestingly enough, the science of gratitude shows that it's, it's scientifically more beneficial for you, neuroscientifically more beneficial for you, releasing serotonin. When you see acts of gratitude, than you being actually grateful. So if you see someone being kind and you see someone else feeling grateful for someone else being kind, those human interactions, like, they're grounded in science. Yeah. And I suppose um, it's not coming from a place of ego.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If it's genuine helping somebody else, it's not coming. so, So it's
1: addressing the ego thing as well, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. It's like a random act of kindness. Like yeah. it's just, it's not, it's not for a purpose. It's not for your for your benefit, really. Yeah, because yeah. for you, you weren't
0: really expecting that outcome, and you were like, "Oh my god, this is." I feel great. I'm delighted for him. I feel great. This is it's it's win win, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Win win. Yeah. So, what were we talking to kids about?
1: Yeah, God, that was one of my first ever talks. What would I have been actually talking about? It would have been definitely self talk. It would have been negative thinking and self talk. because that was the the big thing for me was the narrative of my mind sort of you're not good enough. You'll never be able to change. You're no use. You're not man enough. That was the narrative in my mind, so I was sort of obsessed with that in the early days. It's still really important that negative thinking mindset. So I think I would have been talking around that, and we all have that relationship. We all have those conversations with ourselves. So it's 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 everywhere for 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 each person, you know. So let's. It's because we're here to
0: talk about habits. That habit of self talk and that ruminating, constant negative ruminating. You know, ruminating without actually coming up with a solution, just general sort of like going over and over and over stuff. And and it's something that I'm aware of now that I, I stop myself. Am I actually coming up with a solution here? Do I want to come up with a solution? Come up with a solution. Think about the thing, come up with a solution, but stop ruminating about it. So if we're talking about habits and good habits and swapping out bad habits, thinking bad things about yourself and saying good things to yourself about yourself you know, you see, you see it on social media, you know, high five yourself in the mirror every morning. Does that have a physical effect on your brain?
1: Like what's, what's going on there? Definitely does. Everything has a physical effect on your brain, and and there's a lot of great research around self compassion, and self compassion does really feed into those neural underpinnings as well. Like, and it's the opposite of like shame and 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 these kind of and a lot of people struggle with the shame. So if you're if you're feeling shame, you're telling yourself you're not a good person, you don't deserve this. You have something maybe happened in the past, and you're blaming yourself. But if all of a sudden you're giving yourself, you're you're being self compassionate, and you're saying, Do you know what, you had a tough start in life, you didn't have it easy. You're gonna make a bit more of a difference now. You're you're good to other people. You're a kind human being. You deserve love. These kinds of things where you're being compassionate to yourself. That is activating many of those. Like it's gonna make you feel better. It's just gonna change. It, it by default, the bad habit is gone. So the negative self-talk is gone. So which is gonna activate the stress response. Cause one of the biggest learnings in my life was like I wanted to, when I had that shift in perspective. All of a sudden, I felt so much better. And I, I had this realisation that I'm not berating myself verbally anymore. That inner narrative went quiet. I had that realisation that the, that sort of switched off or the, the volume really went low on that. And I says, is that why I felt so good? So a lot of my PhD research was exploring this relationship between self-talk and our emotions. And the research shows that language is a vehicle for emotions. So if you tell yourself you're a piece of crap every single day you're going to feel like a piece of crap. And there's a quote that I love it's a Persian um, poet called Hafiz and it's the words you speak become the house you live in. So you are going to be feeling the, 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 all the, the negative Implications, physical and emotional implications of negative self-talk. So, if you replace that with positive self-talk, self-compassionate self-talk, say you are deserving, you do deserve a chance. It wasn't your fault for what got on. That's just a more soothing narrative that just calms down those systems and allows the space to change.
0: And can that be a sort of a fake it till you make it thing? In that, like you start maybe not believing it fully, but the more you say, it, you you will then start believing it.
1: Yeah, as it's, it's a funny one as well because I don't like the term fake it till you make it but it does work to a certain extent as well and there's a lot of people that like you could say cognitive behavioural CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy and it's reframing techniques and as good as that can be, it's not for everybody. So it is about finding your own therapy, therapy finding what works for you. This reframing technique actually did work for me. Like I remember telling myself when I was doing public speaking gigs and I was getting very nervous at the start. I say, I'm really excited. I'm really excited. And I remember after a while I was like, oh my God, I am excited. And it kind of worked. I started of faked that until I made it. But for deep traumatic stuff, it, it's not that simple. And you do really like you can't think your way out of a thinking problem. I really don't believe that especially if it's grounded in trauma and it's grounded in bodily sensations. So sometimes you have to do a little bit of trauma work, you have to do breath work, you have it could be yoga, there's lots of different techniques, but doing it safely with a therapist, but it's sort of calming the body down force, calming those physical sensations down force and then that can create the space to have it, have a different mindset and a different different narrative for mm. your life as well.
0: And I know personally like those kind of things when you get into them first meditation, yoga, therapy, there's a, there's a lot of emotion involved yes. and it can be, a, it can be, it can take a while, you know, you, yeah. you have to stick with it and, um, but it's, but it's worth it in the end, um, in my experience. So it can be hard to give up a bad habit and people aren't always successful the first time, second time, third time. So, you know, people can be left then feeling bad, guilty, you know, bad about themselves. What advice would you
1: give to somebody who is who's trying to break a bad habit and failing. Failing. Failing is the key word there. Even even thinking of bad habits, I've heard of people that have gone to treatment centres again and again and again, and you do hear of people like this, their sixth or seventh attempt. Then they finally get clean. But for people just in terms of general habits and they fail, like that word failure is a really interesting one, and I, I was really interested in the word failure because my some of my greatest failures have become my greatest weapons in my life. And I looked into the etymology, the meaning of the word success and failure. And success comes from the, word, the Latin word subsidiary, which means to come after. So I've started to reframe that. So success comes after failure. And a lot of great people out there, some of the most successful people ever, failed so much. J.K. Rowland's book, was uh, the Harry Potter series, was uh, rejected 37 times or something like that. So if it's bad habits and you fail the first time, it's just a step on the ladder to success. Just jump on again, jump on again. I'm personally really struggling with a habit at the moment I just have this weird habit of checking my phone while I'm at traffic lights now I'm not I'm not going texting around like that I just pick it up I go to pick it up it's like a sniffer boredom and I pick up the phone and I put in an intervention it was like this the golden rule of habit change I put in an intervention when I go to it when I feel that urge I'm just going to take a deep breath and I've done it for a while and then all of a sudden I found myself recently I'm picking up the bloody phone again so that was a failure but I'm just going to do it better next time so it's like don't berate yourself. Be self-compassionate and say this is a step on the ladder to success because some of the most successful people in life failed many, 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 many times. So reframe it in that way.
0: Yeah, and be curious as
1: to why. Be curious
0: as to why. You, why you yeah, slip back into yeah. it as
1: well. So since you started
0: along the new, you know, the, I don't the want to path. say the new <laughs> path. I was going to say the new, Brian, but the new path, the new habit, yeah. uh, the good habit, the healthier habit, um, what, what's been
1: some of the best experiences you've had and the things that kind of stuck with you Uh, without doubt it's all about connection like I was basically cutting me feelings off That, that was the sole goal of drugs for me was nullifying those feelings those bad feelings but it didn't heroin isn't specific to bad feelings it's specific to all feelings so I was just feeling nothing I was numb And it probably took me about three to four years really for those feelings to all come back and to have that deep connection with myself. And it was only when I got connected with myself that I started forging deeper connections with my loved ones, my family and stuff like that as well. So by a million miles, reconnecting with my family, my mom, my dad, my siblings, my sister, my brothers, that was just unbelievable. And then a couple of years ago, then I found love for the very first time in my life as well. So by a million miles, meet me, my partner that I met today and reconnecting with my family. That's where it's, I think we're social animals, we're we're emotional beings. Mm. And that's, that's where all the good stuff is. Yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, I think the Beatles, like the Beatles saying all you need is love. I mean, you you probably need a few quid as well, but (laughs) they weren't far off the mark, were (laughs) they? Honestly, like, but but talking about that and, and doing the work and, you know, reconnecting with your emotions don't be surprised if you do this work and you find yourself driving along in the car listening to a podcast crying bawling your eyes out that's yeah. that's something that can happen <laughs> regularly um, so what have you learned then about the causes of bad habits um, during your studies what's the I mean maybe you've touched on a lot of this already I've
1: touched on a few of them and there's a, there's a the, big, the big thing that people have to realise and we have touched on this that bad habits just don't happen out of nowhere like they are serving a purpose like if you have a drink because you're stressed it's serving a purpose, it's relieving the stress initially. So the stress is the trigger. So there could be external triggers, like something happens, somebody shouts at you and you want to remove that feeling inside of your body. You might be worried, financial stress, you're worried about the future, your kids might be getting bullied, you're worried about what their lives are gonna turn out like. And this creates this internal suffering. And what we want to do, we want to remove that internal suffering. So when you think of habits being rewarded, it's not so much that you're getting something that's good. It's usually the removal of something that's bad. So if you're struggling internally or you have these external challenges, this is what's going to sort of catapult you into the realm of bad habits, whether it's alcohol, whether it's just binging on Netflix, picking up your phone 24-7. So the main thing about habits is, it's not about looking at the behavior that the actual bad habit, it's looking at what is preceding the habit, whether it's boredom for picking up your phone, whether it's stress for alcohol, whether it's um, drugs for challenging relationships, like whatever is actually going on, look at the triggers that are really causing those habits because that's where it's at at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting that for me, that when I look back on my life and I see that I couldn't go to a certain place or a certain house unless we were having a few drinks in that house. You know, yeah. I couldn't really go to a pub or a nightclub without having a few drinks. I'd always have a few pre-going-out drinks or whatever. And now, you know, once I've done the work, I'm able to look back and go, actually, I just didn't like those places. And I had to kind of numb myself to be in that environment. Yeah, That was what I was doing. So when I go over there, I bring a bottle of wine and I go on a Saturday. When I go to the pub, I have a few drinks before and it loosens me up so I can chat to everybody. Now I'm like... I see it from a completely different angle and a completely different place. And now I see that I can't, I don't like, I I didn't feel comfortable there. I didn't feel comfortable in in the company of those people. So I was medicating myself in preparation for that space. But now I'm like, there's no way I'd ever go to that place. Like the opposite was the truth.
1: Do you know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. Context is key and time is key as well. So the context of where you are internally, where you are externally in place and time, is really really important, and then what we'll do is we're talking about self talk, and I'm sure there was a lot of justification, rationalizations of yourself, societal rationalizations. So ah, I sure it's grand to drink all weekend. Weekend starts on a Thursday and ends on a Monday. These things that we just tell ourselves and believe, like that, that's the crazy thing as well. I I, I often say I had a trauma problem, but I also had a self deception problem. I could tell myself a lie and believe it if it served the purpose. So we can rationalize and tell ourselves these kind of lies and believe them and they allow us not to feel as bad when we are engaging in these bad habits.
0: Yeah, so, so I almost like to question the habits yeah. and don't take them for, for sort of like, well, that's just the way Ireland is. That's, we're just like that. I'm just, I, I just can't communicate. I have to, you know, there's probably something. So, so it's almost like, um, be curious. Yes. With every
1: habit. Yes. That's lovely. Good and bad. Yes. Yeah. Be curious. Are, are, am I being self deceptive or how could I be fooling myself here? Be curious about your own mindset. And it's back to self awareness. It's, it's an ability to be aware of your emotions and internal narrative. Be the observer of that rather than just being the tinker. Beautiful. The book. Bonus time. Bonus time. Tell me about it. What brought you to write it, and what was what were you looking to tell other people about in the book? Oh God! So the 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 word, the, the, the the title "Bonus Time" really says it all for me. So I believe I was given a second chance at life, and I'm living on bonus time. And w- one of the things what bonus time is for me is I don't worry about what other people think. I let go of things that are outside of my control I just take risks dream big be bold take a chance get like take I'm going to give this second chance at life I got a chance and this is me living on bonus time and just so many opportunities have come into my life in terms of having that mindset. Like one of the things that i done in 2017, I wanted to learn from people further along the path. So I just got it into my head. I googled uh, successful people in Ireland, guessed their emails based on the companies where they worked and their agents and stuff like that. I got interviews with Amy Huberman, Dara O'Brien, some of the, the best business people in Ireland. And it was John Boyle actually of Boyle Sports said it to me uh, when I was interviewing, like company worth 1.5 billion. And he's in recovery as well, funny enough. And John said to me, he says, Do you know why you're sitting here today? because you don't give a crap you're living on bonus time you don't care anymore and that was the reality of that as well so uh, that, that, that that was the essence of the book but part of living on bonus time was just sharing my journey sharing the story and I think I'm a writer at heart I have I love speaking I love doing public speaking and stuff like that and I love teaching but I think writing is my greatest passion and I love writing that book I've wrote a lot of blogs and I do a lot of writing in other areas as well but I think of another four or five books in me my latter stages in my life are going to be books I just love it but it felt like something that I just had to get out and put out there into the world, and I, I just love the art form. I just love the art form, alright. And I think that's sort of painting pictures in people's heads. That's where it is for me. How did that feel? Seeing your <sighs> oh, that was that was tough. So as I mentioned earlier, I was I was kind of disconnected from my emotions for a couple of years in early recovery. I was disconnected from some emotions, the bad ones. I was loving life, I was happy, I was free, I was emboldened and it was great. But I was staying away from those other, more vulnerable emotions, that the sadness and the harm that I caused and the shame that I caused as well, or the shame that I felt. And when writing the book, I had to go and speak to me mom, speak to me sister, the people that I caused the most pain with. And I was on a serious deadline for that book, but there was a week during that writing process where my body, just the emotions all flooded in. And my mum was telling me about how she used to be crying in the car when I'd be asking her for lifts to bring me to get methadone, but I was really going to get heroin and I'd leave her in the car park for an hour. I brought my mum on drug deals and i will put her in danger and I never felt the emotions of that. So the, the hurt and the pain that I felt while writing that book was, it was actually, it was really, really heavy. But... The thing is, I don't dwell on that. Like, I regret hurting the people that I loved, but it was all on the back of the trauma that I experienced myself as well. So it was it was just the way it was. And I don't make me mad cry anymore. I make me mad laugh. We have great times together now. So I can only do what I can now in the present moment. So... It was really tough. The feelings around that were really tough but where the feelings really get it from me I, I, we had a joke before this that when I watch Friends sometimes it makes me emotional but it's not the sad things that make me so emotional. It's the uplifting things and when I think of the, the the good times that I have with my family today that's where the emotions come from and I feel like getting, getting uh, teary eyed with the stuff like that as well. We have really good connections today. Strong connections and we all had our own traumas. We all had our own struggles and there's been great learning. There's a great line in the circuits like addiction is not a spectator sport eventually the whole family get to play but recovery is the same wow that's insane um are there any simple <laughs> we've
0: talked a lot and some brilliant advice in there already but if you were to pick one or two or something new uh, some simple advice that you can give to our listeners to help them change bad habits
1: into good ones starting monday what would you say brian penny Right, so I've three that tie in together really super simple because I think that's the key. But the first one I'd like to talk about is is, is the golden rule of habit change. And we have touched on it closely already. So the golden rule of habit change is basically the trigger is going to stay there. So there might be anxiety. So the golden rule is instead of acting on that trigger, the anxiety and reaching for a bottle of wine... Go for a walk with the dog, go for a run, reach out with a friend. So the trigger will still be there, but you change your behavior for the trigger. Now, when we're talking about habits lasting over time, you need a trigger, you need a behavior and you need a reward. So that's sort of the habit loop that we talk about. So if the trigger stays the same, the anxiety is still there, because you have to do a lot of work on yourself to remove anxiety. There's no quick fix for that. So let's say you come home from work, you feel stressed. That's the trigger. You usually have a drink, you drink, you relieve the stress. That's the reward. So that's the habit loop that sticks. But walk the dog, go for a run, call a friend, read a book. So the behavior is reacting to the trigger but all of a sudden then it's rewarding as well at the same time. And you can do that very simply as well, like remove the alcohol from the house. If it's junk food and you're just going to the fridge, remove the junk food, put something else there in play as well to remind yourself to e- activate this golden rule of habit change. And that's one of the most powerful, powerful ways of turning a bad habit into a good habit in a very simple way For you can see it like, you know. Excellent, right. But the last one that I'd I'm like sorry, to. Just yeah, of it. No. The other two. The other two, yeah. The, and it's, so it, it's a trio. It's, a, it's a really one thing, but it's a trio of things. And I think it's really important. So the first one is baby steps. If you want to change, inc- implement good habits into your life, baby steps. Don't say you're going to meditate for 30 minutes a day, because that's bloody tough. Like, you know what I mean? Five minutes of meditation is hard enough. Don't say you're going to start running and you're going to run 10 kilometers a morning, because if you start big like that. The consistency won't be there. So baby steps are absolutely crucial. Start small, make it sustainable so you can continue the habit over time. So it actually becomes a habit because otherwise it's just a a start of a behavior and it's not even becoming a habit. So baby steps is really, really key. Make it small. The other one linked to that is make it simple. Don't say you're gonna join a gym and go five times a week when the gym is ten kilometers away and you come home from work and all of a sudden you're not even in the humor of driving to the gym, never mind actually doing a workout. So whatever the habit is, make it really, really easy, really simple to actually do. Because one of the problems with like it's 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 easy to be motivated to eat a chocolate bar because it tastes great. But it's hard to be motivated to do something that's difficult. And a lot of the good habits that we want to implement are difficult. So make it simple is really key. So baby steps. Make it simple. And then the last little thing is that life will 100% get in the way, whether it's Christmas, whether it's holidays, whether it's somebody getting sick or you getting sick yourself. It's jumping straight back in because it's often the the, the way that some people start a good habit and then something gets in the way and they just forget about it or they say, I'll wait till next Monday and all of a sudden they're a couple of months down the line they're like, God, I had a good thing going there and it's just gone. So try to use technology or the environment to set reminders to jump back in as soon as you can. Keep that habit going. And then what happens over time is you will change the brain over time and it just becomes what you do rather than something that you have to push against. So once more, those three things? Baby steps, keep it simple, and jump straight back in when life gets in the way. Excellent. Thank you very much, Brian Penny. Thank you, Keith. (laughs)
0: Quitting smoking requires willpower, but we could all use a little help sometimes. Nicorette's Stop Smoking products increase your chances of quitting smoking by up to 60% versus unaided. Clinically proven to help you quit for good. Nicorette contains nicotine. Stop smoking aid. Requires willpower. Always read the label.